It's good to worship God together today. Amen, right? Are you glad about that? All right, good, good. So we are in which week of our current series? Week Week four. We're in week four. Uh, so I'm going to uh, change this up a little bit. Usually I go week one, two, three. So what did we uh, go over week two? Right? This is going to mess with your mind a little bit. What did we go over week two? God and stuff. Yeah, yeah. God is trustworthy. I heard it. I heard it up here. God is trustworthy and he's faithful, we talked about. And that is God and stuff, stuff right there. And uh, week number three, last week, what did we talk about? God is a loving father, right? Right? Come on, this needs to be a little bit more people uh, calling out here. Otherwise, we're going to go back and do this series again. Uh, all right, so God is a loving father, we talked about last week. What did we talk about week one? Go way back three weeks ago. That he is gracious and merciful, right? That God is gracious and merciful. So today, uh, so anyway, you can write those down so that next week you know I'm going to ask you again what we went through, uh, you know, over the past few weeks. So uh, today we're going to talk about the attribute of God that maybe. Maybe, maybe we least want to hear about or talk about, all right? Maybe we least want to hear about this one or talk about it. But it is one that we have to look to uh, as we remember, uh, as we worship God and remember him and think of him, right? This is an attribute that we need to remember. It's mentioned, in fact, over 600 times throughout Scripture. And it is absolutely necessary to understand. And that is, does anybody have an idea? Some of you know, I, I talked earlier about it. But we're going to be talking about the holiness of God, right? The holiness of God today. All right? So we're going to pray, and then we're going to begin by reading through uh, some of Isaiah chapter 6. Okay? So if you want to open up to there, you can on your phone or in your actual Bible or wherever. And, uh, and we'll be in Isaiah chapter 6, all right? Father, thank you for today. We're grateful to be here together uh, to worship you, to look to you as we get into your word, Lord. In every single way today, I pray that worship would be the way that we live, God, in uh, singing songs from our mind and heart to you, uh, in looking at your word and worshiping you through studying and knowing your word. God, through the way that we treat each other and our relationships here, that we would be people who worship you through every area of our life, God. And maybe we haven't looked at it like that before, but every area of our life is, in fact, worship to you. And so today we come, we give it to you once again here. We're glad to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to read in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to start out with verses 1 through 4, okay? Verses 1 through 4. And here's what it says. I think I have it in the New King James Version. I actually put it in in the New King James, but then I realized that it was in the King James, and I, didn't, I, I was, like, not able to read it all that well. So I went back and changed it to the New King James, all right? So here it goes. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple... Above it stood uh, seraphim, which one had six wings. Uh, with two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. 
And one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah saw this uh, vision, and he records it here in verses 1 through 4. So I want to unpack this a little bit today, okay? And then we'll actually read a little bit more of it uh, later. But I want to unpack this a little bit because there's a lot in this. And I don't know if you knew that, but there's a lot in this. Maybe you just read that and thought, well, I don't know. That sounds good. But there's a lot that's in this, okay? King Uzziah. He was king of Judah, and uh, he ruled actually for a decent amount of time for a uh, king of that day, right? Uh, we can read about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. We can also read about him in 2 Kings chapter 15, right? Now, he's also referred to by the name of Azariah in 2 Kings. And so don't, when you read that, don't be thrown, you know, like for a loop, like who is this guy? It's the same guy, goes by, uh, just has different names. Uh, but in 2 Kings chapter 15, uh, it tells us that uh, Uzziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, okay? He did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done, okay? So he did what was right. Uh, in 2 Chronicles 26, we read that he sought God in the days of Zechariah, right? The priest Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Okay, that's what Second Chronicles talks, uh, says about him. Now, Uzziah, does anybody know when he became king, when he started his reign, at what age? Anybody know how old he was? 16, all right? He was 16. And, uh, and so he started his reign at age 16, and he reigned for how many years? Anybody know? He reigned for 52 years, right? 52 years he reigned. I mean, you know, that's pretty good. That's no Queen Elizabeth, you know, but hey, I mean, you know, that's pretty good. 52 years is a long run, right? A good stretch. Uh, what is Queen Elizabeth like? She's been going for like how many years now? Like this is wild how many years she's, she's been. Yeah, wow, it's just, wow, that's something. So, uh, you know, so 52 years. We, we, can't see, we can't think about that very well because we tend to look at, we have presidents every four years that change or eight years, right? So we're like constantly changing. But 52 years he reigned as king. And so he led uh, the Jew, he led Israel or, or Judah in military battles with victories over the Philistines and over neighboring countries. So he, he was, uh, you know, he was a strong king. Now, here's the thing. Second Chronicles 26, 16 states this about him, right? His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt for he became exceedingly strong, right? So he was a strong king, built up the military. He was vic uh, there was victories, and he was victorious in different outings and battles. So here's the thing that to take away from this. For 52 years, this was all kind of good stuff happening. The people would have felt good, right? They would have felt good about things. They would have felt safe and sound about the you know, the, about how the kingdom was going, or, man, this is good. You know, we're, they're just in a good time, right? But then we see something else that happens, all right? And Second Chronicles 26, 16 tells us 
what happened to King Uzziah, all right? It tells us when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, it says. For he transgressed against the Lord, his God, by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense, right, in the temple. Here's how the NIV puts it, okay? Uh, what it means is that he was strong and he became and that led to his downfall, all right? So that's uh, maybe a little bit more understandable terms for us uh, to, to hear that from. He was, he was strong, right? His fame became great. And so he was strong, and what happened is his pride got the best of him, and now we see that it led to his downfall. Now, if you read about this story, continuing on in Second Chronicles 26, he enters the temple in order to burn incense on the altar. And what happens is 80 brave and courageous priests come in after him to stop him. 80, okay? Didn't send just one in. 80 came in to say, this is not right. So they came in to stop him and reason with him to not do this thing because that wasn't his responsibility to do. In fact, God had set it up that who would be at the altar in the temple? Who was that? The priest, right? It wasn't the king. It was the priest who was to do that. But Uzziah, filled with pride and knowing he was a strong king, decided he was going to take matters into his own hands. And he was thinking, I'm above the rule or the law. And I'm going to go in and I'm going to do this. Eighty priests tried to stop him and didn't stop. Here's the thing. They came in to stop him. What Scripture says is that he became angry with them. He got mad at them for trying to stop him because he was prideful, and instantly he was struck with leprosy. The Lord struck him with leprosy in that instant because he didn't listen. The moment he got mad at the priest for trying to do the right thing and stop him, he was struck with leprosy, all right? In that same moment, he became angry with them. And so what we see about him is that he is in isolation then until the end of his life. Still ruling, uh, but he, was, he had made that mistake and, still, and now was in isolation because anybody with leprosy was not to be around everybody else. They were uh, isolated, right? So all this to say there is a lot in simply the line in the year king uzziah died right there's a lot in there you just have to go and read the backstory right in the year that he died it could be taken in the year the great and the wise king died right or it also could be implied in the year the great and wise king who tragically disobeyed god died right these things would be in people's mind as they read when king uzziah died they would be thinking these things Uzziah reigned so long that the people now were anxious, right? They were anxious of what was to come. They would be unsettled as to what's to come, right? I mean, here in America, we have eight years that go pretty good, and then something changes. We don't know what's going to happen, right? So we're like, we're hoping for the best, right? We're, we're voting and hoping for the best, but we don't know. And so it is always a little unsettling, isn't it, when change comes around? And I don't know about you, but maybe you can understand that, right? At times when things change, it can be unsettling. Anybody in here with me on that, right? You had change in your life? Uh, a time when many things change. Sometimes there's a time when many things change at once, and then you're even more unsettled, right? And so 
this is what happens with us. Maybe you don't know what the future is going to hold. And so maybe you, as I do, understand this feeling today, right? In the midst of turmoil and uncertainty among the people of what was to come, the prophet saw a vision, right? So here's this time where things are changing. Man, they, they were unsettled now because they didn't know what was going to happen. But God was good to give Isaiah a vision of something much greater than a king, right? Much greater than a king who had been on the throne for 52 years. And so what Isaiah saw was God seated on the throne, high and lifted up. Uh, and around God, we see what? what, are the, what what's around God and worshiping him? They're, they're seraphim, they're called, right? They're seraphim. And so you might ask the question, what are seraphim, right? What are these things? And i got to tell you, this is the only place that they're mentioned in Scripture, okay? So outside of this Scripture, I couldn't tell you what all the seraphim are. So this is what tells me what they are right here, right? And so seraphim means fiery or burning ones. And they're only mentioned here, once again, in Scripture, and here's what we see about them. They have six wings, okay? Two of them for flying. We see that two of them cover their face, right? And it's not because of the coronavirus, okay? But for shielding them from God's glory, something far greater uh, than just the coronavirus, right? God's glory. They had to shield their faces from that. So with two wings, they cover their face. And then with two wings, they cover their feet. Why do you think their feet were covered? Why, why do you think their feet were covered? Because they were positioned near holy ground. They're positioned near holy ground. And what these seraphim sing is what? Holy, 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 right? The Hebrew word for this is kadosh, and it means holy, consecrated, or separate, right? Set apart, holy, consecrated. This is what the seraphim are speaking back and forth and calling out, right? That God is holy, right? It means that God is holy, separate, set apart, right? He's high above. And so the seraphim actually emphasize this over and over and over and over, saying the same things, right? You know how when somebody repeats something, they really mean it? right? When you repeat it, you really mean it, right? Or maybe it's like uh, Matthew McConaughey, right? Anybody know who Matthew McConaughey is in here, right? When he always says, all right, all right, all right, right? He's all, that's what he says all the time, right? But the, the seraphim are not saying, all right, all right, all right. They're saying, holy, holy, holy about God. They're emphasizing his holiness and that he is. In our culture today, we tend to take this word and attribute it more lightly, right? The word holy, right? We use the word holy in front of a lot of different things, right? Some of them I'm not even going to repeat in church today because I can't. Uh, and some of them, to a lesser degree, are saying the same thing, but I won't even say those uh, either. So we say things like holy moly, right? Right? I mean, here's the thing. I say that all the time, right? Holy moly or holy cow, right? We say that. We say, I've been known to say, holy Toledo. I don't even know why. It's just something I've heard before, right? And so you say, holy Toledo or holy smokes, right? We're saying all these things. We put holy in front of a lot of other words. And, uh, you know, when <laughs> it made me think, when I was putting this together, it made me think about when I used to work at Pacific Metal Company. Uh, you know, I, I worked in the warehouse. And, and so, um, 
you know, a lot of the guys around me, they, they knew that I was serious about God, and they knew that, you know, I was part of a church and, and sometimes would speak, and, and I was just kind of getting into my feet wet in ministry. And, uh, and so they would know that. So there was this one guy specifically that when he was around me, sometimes he'd say something that was crude or rude or he'd cuss in front of me or something, and he'd be like, He'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, Clint. And this is what he'd say. He'd say, I know you're a holy man of the cloth. That's what he would say to me, like I, a holy man of the cloth. I was like, I don't even know what you're saying to me, man, but, but okay, if you say so, right? Like, I don't think, you know, anyway. And so uh, sometimes Christians are called things like holy rollers, right? I've been, even another guy at Pacific Metal, he called me. He's like, you go to church, you one of them holy rollers, right? That's what he said to me. It's like, so holy rollers, right? And we know that that is actually uh, meant negatively, right? Like negatively, like there's judgmental and hypocritical people in the church, right? Like do those exist in the church? Well, of course they do, right? Of which sometimes I am the one. You ever think about that? Like people call us that. It's like, yep, you know, right? The church does have people who are hypocritical and sometimes even though I don't like it, sometimes that's me. And maybe sometimes that's you too. People need to understand the church is not filled with perfect people at all. Amen? Right? At least if you're here and you're perfect, time for you to leave because you're because this place is filled with imperfect people. All right? So, holy rollers, things like that, right? Is uh, Sometimes this is used and thrown around uh, for these terms, right? Holiness means this, separate, set apart, consecrated, or even a cut above sometimes is used as well. It can mean that. Now, in your home, do you have everyday dishes and silverware, anybody? Everyday dishes and silverware, like you know, you eat off of that, whatever meal you're having, whoever, you know, just your family's there, whatever. And so, you know, I, we, I say just your family, but it's, here's really sad. Your family should be the ones that get to eat off the best ones. But anyway, okay. So, you know, you have everyday dishes and silverware, and then you also have your when guests come over dishes and silverware. Come on, anybody in here have that? When guests come over? There's only like three of you? I don't know about that. <laughs> so... I'm not so sure, right? You have, like, your grandma's china or something like that, you know, uh, or, or your mom's china, something like that, right? And so uh, Tony Evans is a pastor uh, in Texas, and he talks about it like this, right? He, he says holiness, he puts it in this way. He says um, that your best china dishes don't get put in the same place as everyday use dishes, do they? They, they don't. They get their own space, which is usually high and lifted up uh, away from everything else, Right? So your china dishes, they're not in the bottom one, probably, you know, where, you know, they're just kind of thrown down there. They're put somewhere, oh, you know, where you can see them and they're protected and taken care of and stuff. It's kind of in the same way, listen, God is seated above, right? Obviously, that falls far short of being able to be an analogy that actually works about God, but you get the picture, right? God is set above. He's high and lifted up, right? This is what we see in this scripture. He is holy and he's set apart. And so you might ask, what is he holy and set apart from? And what would be the answer to that? Everything, right? Everything and everyone. He's high and lifted up. He's holy and set apart from, he's, you know, separate from everyone. He's greater than everything that's ever been created or has existed Scriptures are always pointing to this, right? And rhetorically asking this question, who is like our God? Right? And it's a rhetorical question because who is like our God? 
nobody, right? No one, no one is like our God. He's completely and entirely and fully holy, unlike any other created person in history, right? He is set apart. He's self-existent, he's self-sustaining, and he's self-sufficient. Now, here's some words I'm going to throw out here. He's omniscient. What does that mean? Anybody know what omniscient means? Go ahead, yell it out. That's right. He knows all. He's all-knowing. So he is omniscient. He didn't have to learn anything, right? He didn't open up the books and do some studying to try to find out what we know. He knows it. He doesn't lack in knowing anything, right? And he's omnipresent. This is a little easier. He's omnipresent. What does that mean? He is present everywhere, right? He's at all places, at all times. And if you say you can uh, reason that out 100%, you lie today, okay? Because it's just like above our knowledge. It's above what we can understand. He's everywhere at all times. And then he's also omnipotent, which means what? He's all-powerful, right? He's all-powerful. He's not lacking in any power at all, right? There is no one else like our God. There is no one like this. And so, what was Isaiah's response to this vision from God, right? Did he jump in and be like, hey, I'm going to be like the seraphim. I'm going to start worshiping God, right? Did he do that? Did he jump in there and just start worshiping? What did he do? He didn't do that at all, right? Let's, let's read Isaiah Chapter 6, verse 5 through 7. Here's what Isaiah writes. He says, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Right? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and then one of the seraphim flew over to him. It says that flew over to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. So Isaiah's response was not to be like, hey, I went in on the action. I'm going to start worshiping God too, right? He didn't come in there all happy-go-lucky, right, all prideful, arrogant, like ready to roll. Rather, what he saw in the presence of God, he says, woe is me. When he sees the holiness of God, he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, right? And his response was to confess he was unclean and that God's holiness was so great that he felt he was ruined completely. Now, what did God do to get Isaiah to this point? What did God do to get Isaiah to this point? Is there anything he did? Did he sit on his throne and be like, Isaiah, you should really be honoring me because I'm holy, right? And, and did he do anything? He didn't do anything. There was a vision of God and seated on the throne, and all this was happening. And, I, you know, God didn't have to do anything to get Isaiah to that point. Rather, what happened is God was just God, right? God was just God, and Isaiah saw him. And because he just saw God, man, 
He was undone, and he knew it. It was obvious that God's holiness was so great that his only, the only thing he could do was confess his own shortcomings and say, you know, in that moment, be convicted of God's presence right there, right? And he, and he knew at that moment that it was just, it was, God was holy and he was not in that way, right? You know, Billy Graham once said that only when we understand the holiness of God, we will understand the depth of our sin, right? Only when we understand the holiness of God, we understand the depth of our sin. Isaiah doesn't see the holiness of God and begin, you know, immediately being like talking about the sins of other people, right? He doesn't do that. He sees the holiness of God, and it leads him to acknowledge his own sin first, right? Which many of us aren't great at doing. I don't know if you're honest with yourself, uh, and, and if I'm honest with myself, I'm probably not the greatest at doing that all the time, right? We tend to hear a message and consider everybody else who needs to hear that message, right? Man, I sure wish that so-and-so was here to hear that message today because they were really the one who needed this most, I think, right? Have you ever found yourself uh, listening to a message and thinking about somebody who needed to hear that? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand today. And I'm not going to raise my hand today, but I have, okay? I have done that, right? That's what we tend to do, right, is listen to something and think, oh, man, if so-and-so could hear it, we, we just reflect from ourselves and, and project onto somebody else what, that, what they need, right? We think that, you know, all the other people need to hear the things, um, but we don't need to hear it and repent of our own shortcomings, we can only be self-righteous if we compare ourselves to others rather than see ourselves in the light of holiness of God, right? If we look to other people, we will be self-righteous. If we say, well, at least we're better than them, right? We're, we're not like them, right? And so when we do that, we can be self-righteous. But when we look at God and his holiness, let me just tell you, there's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance, Isaiah dealt with himself first. He didn't try to negotiate with God or promise change. Uh, uh, if he would just do this, he recognized God and confessed his own uh, shortcomings and unworthiness to even be there. I'm undone. But then what happens? See, when it looks bleak, here's what we know. That when we keep reading there, we saw that God sends the seraphim over with a burning coal to touch Isaiah's lips and to cleanse his lip. And let me tell you, he's a prophet. He kind of needs his mouth, right? That's like his tool of ministry. And he says, my lips are unclean. And so God sends the seraphim over to touch his lips with this coal and to cleanse him uh, and to be God's instrument of use, Right? His mouth as a prophet was his instrument, right? So God tells him in Isaiah 6, 7 that his guilt has been taken away and his sin atoned for, that God is good. Let me just say, God is good to initiate this atonement for Isaiah. He's like, woe is me. Man, I'm undone. And God initiates the atonement and cleanses him. And let me just say, he did this for us as well. He did this for us as well. 
Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. See, God loved us and provided the way forward for uh, all of us sinners, okay? All of us. And, uh, and what was the way that he provided that? Through the, this scripture, Romans 5 tells us, through the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Christ, right? And so Jesus had to be an atonement, right? And so, listen, without going too much into this, and I talk about this sometimes, you know, there are some people out there that say Jesus didn't need to die on the cross because if God sent his own son to die on the cross, then he is a cosmic child abuser. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that or not. I say it because I've heard it. I listen to a lot of apologetic stuff, and they talk about this. And in some areas and arenas, uh, they talk about this. But Paul is pretty clear here, right, that Jesus is the atonement and is the way, and his blood was necessary to save, to make the way and save us, okay? So salvation comes through Jesus, through his blood. We even, you know, we even remembered it today, right, through communion. Paul tells us we were God's enemies, but because of his love, his plan was to pay the punishment for sin himself so that we could become his family and reconciled to him. So God is holy. He is loving and good. In him there is no darkness at all. He never sins. He cannot lie. So when he makes the way for eternal life with him, we can count on it being trustworthy and good. And it is the only way, right? Jesus was God in flesh. He was totally divine and totally human at the same time, right? Try to describe that completely, right? Good luck with it completely. I don't think any of us can completely, right? But we believe it because that's what scriptures tell us about him, right? He was totally divine and totally human at the same time. While he set aside his divine rights, he didn't say, I don't need them anymore, Right? So when he came, he's still fully divine and he's still fully human. Emmanuel, God with us, right? If he would have set him aside, it wouldn't have been God with us anymore, right? It just would have been another man with us. Jesus was God in flesh, right? Emmanuel, God with us. He didn't come for the righteous, but for who? The unrighteous, right? He didn't come for the holy or those who thought they were holy, but he came for those who were unholy and who needed him. He didn't come for those who were super spiritually healthy or thought they were, but he came for those who knew they had a need for him. And so while we do become more and more like Jesus when we are positioned in him, let me just tell you, we are not Jesus, okay? We're not Jesus, Sometimes people talk about that like we are Jesus. We're not Jesus. He came to make the way that nobody else could make, right? He had a mission that nobody else could walk out. He was there from eternity past. He's there in the present uh, with the Father, and it will be there for eternity. But, you know, I was thinking about this kind of as we 
come to the end here. I was thinking about this. Like, we see so many people walking away from Christianity today, right? We see so many people walking away from the faith today. And we see pastors falling to, you know, sin, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and so, you know, we see these things that happen, and, and it sheds uh, a negative light on, uh, on the church, right? And so, uh, and, and it gets louder, right? All of this negativity towards the church gets louder and louder and can become more hateful and hateful. If you don't believe me, just go online, right? You'll see it, right? When, when a pastor struggles or falls or sins because he's human, right? What's the first thing that people do? It's ugly online. It's ugly there, man. The first thing they want to do is rip them apart put him down. See, I told you, I knew this, you know, all this stuff about it. Let me just say, like, it just gets louder and louder. Tons of deconstruction going on all the time, uh, you know, from deconstructing beliefs, uh, you know, and that's a big movement in our world today. Yet, the, I have a problem because far too often, the same people that deconstruct their faith do not rebuild their faith uh, via scriptures or a firm foundation, but they rather they rebuild it with some cultural faith that's built on their own reasoning and their own feelings and whether or not they agree with God. I'm here to tell you today, uh, Frank Turek is an apologist on, online. I, I watch him sometimes. And what he was interviewing, he's talking to a guy, and the guy started telling him, you know, he, he, he asked him, he said, if, if I could prove to you today that God was 100% real, and I could prove it to you right here today. Would you follow him? Would you give your life to him? And he said, if I agreed with what he thought. Well, then no, you wouldn't. And, and I'm not like bashing that guy. I'm just saying that's what you see all over the place. You see that everywhere, right? Lots of people. And I'm just telling you, we can't use our own reasoning to understand and agree with God or not agree with God. Like, he, what he says is what we go with, right? Like, I don't, that's just the way that it is. But, you know, so many people rebuild their faith off of cultural things and feelings and ideas, and it's sad. Lots of people walking away, right? And we know this. Scripture says in the end times that there will be a great falling away, right? An apostasy. And so maybe it's the end times. I don't know. Maybe it is. I'm not going to tell you 100% for sure, man, this is it. But it might be, right? So we keep watch and we see what's going on. But here's the thing about it. See, with so many people walking away, I still have to stay. And my reason is simple. Where else would I go? Ask yourself that. Where else would you go? John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he says, and he makes an interesting statement. John 6, 51, Jesus tells the people that he is the living bread come down from heaven, and that if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. That's what he says. It was confusing to people, all right? It was confusing to people. They had a hard time with it. Right? And then he doubles down and he tells them this Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in. That's a tough message. The people were like, you know, even his own his disciples were like, Jesus, this is a hard teaching, right? It's a hard teaching, right? And so that's where he lost a lot of people, okay? So the people were confused the first time he says it. Then he doubles down and people are like, nope. 
I'm going to walk away here. And so as those people were leaving, Jesus turns to the 12, and then he asked them in John 6, 67, he says, do you want to go away as well, right? He says to his disciples, his 12 disciples, do you want to go away as well? To which Peter replies, yep, we're out of here, Jesus, right? See you later. We're gone. Is that what he said? No, it's not what he said. I hope you knew that. No, it's not what he said. He didn't say that. Rather, he said what? To whom shall we go? You have the words of what? Eternal life. And we have believed and you have come to know that you, Jesus, are the Holy One of God. So let me ask you, who else has the words of eternal life? And we're going to go into a reflection song just a second here, just for a minute. Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else can redeem you? Who else can save you? Who else is holy and yet still filled with love, compassion, forgiveness? See, when we experience God's presence and holiness, it should stir us, right? It should maybe even shake us a little bit to see him for who he really is and maybe even cause us to confess to him and worship him even to a greater degree, right? Because he is holy. And so maybe today we need to see God through new eyes, right? Maybe today we need to confess to God today. And so during this reflection song, I'd just like us to acknowledge God's holiness and that there is no one like our God. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Clint. I want to thank you for joining us today for this podcast, and I hope it was beneficial for you. Our vision at Family Life Church is simple, to create a safe, and authentic environment for people to encounter Jesus. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please don't hesitate to send us an email at admin at myflc.org or connect with us via social media on Facebook or Instagram at Family Life Church Newburn. We'd enjoy hearing from you. Again, thank you for listening today and God bless you as you pursue Him.